It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. Fifty years ago, on Independence Day weekend in 1970, hundreds of thousands of music fans gathered in rural Byron, Georgia, for the second Atlanta International Pop Festival. It would be one of the biggest crowds to ever witness a Jimi Hendrix performance, and two months later, he was gone. So it was a historic event, but Hendrix wasn't the only reason for that. Here to talk about this major musical milestone is AJC music writer and one of our favorite guests, Melissa (laughs) Ruggieri. Hi. Hi. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you. And you as well, because I know how much you like to talk about music with me. So (laughs) it works out well. Yes, Yes, it does. And I mean, this is a particularly uh, fascinating moment in history and, and in Atlanta history and music history in general, too. There are lots of things about both of these pop festivals that were staged in 1969, the first one, and then the second one in 1970. And, you know, I I did something a little different with the story this time. Last year, I did a story about the first one, and I did it as more of an oral history where I talked to probably a dozen or 15 people, everyone from some of the lawyers who were involved in the contract writing to several of the people, uh, the band members, like from Chicago and Spirit, who took part in it. And I just did it as sort of a running commentary of what their memories were of it. But with this year's story, I wanted to focus a little bit more on Alex Cooley, because he is the man behind both of the pop festivals and a an Atlanta legend as far as the concert industry is concerned. And, you know, he was responsible for bringing festivals to Atlanta because you got to think back, you know, we're so used to, well, in normal times, we're so used to having a dozen festivals, music festivals a year now and or, with, you know, Shaking Knees and Music Midtown and One Music Fest and, and the EDM festivals and all that kind of stuff. And around the country, when you look at what the festival industry had become back in 1969, 1970, you know, there, this wasn't happening. And right. as 
Peter Conlon, he's currently the president of Live Nation Atlanta, but Peter was a longtime, you know, close friend and business partner with Alex. So he filled me in on a lot of stories that Alex would tell him about this. But, you know, what Peter said was back in those days, no music promoters wanted to come to Atlanta. They, the, this was viewed as, they, you know, they were viewed as a bunch of dumb rednecks were, were his words. And that this was the South and nobody wanted to bring music to the South. Everything was in New York or LA and that was it. So when you factor that thought into it and then see what these two festivals turned into and the lineups that they had, and it was really all based on Alex's acumen and, and his ambition as a young concert promoter of wanting to bring this stuff into Atlanta and how well they both worked crowd wise, because Peter likes to remind us that, Woodstock was also in 1969, right after the first Atlanta International Pop Festival. And, you know, Woodstock kind of was a mess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we like to look at the iconic photography and, and some of the performances and stuff. But when you think, you know, when you really look at what happened at Woodstock, it really wasn't the best run festival, whereas right. both Atlanta pop festivals never had any significant issues. Of course, yes, there are people doing drugs. That's what, you know, that's what you do at festivals. That's what yeah. they did back in the 60s and 70s. But even the, the cops who were out on premises, there weren't that many arrests because people weren't really doing anything that egregious. There, there weren't any awful fights that broke out or violence or, or things like that. And, and so not only were these festivals significant from a cultural standpoint, they were significant in the sense that they showed that three, four hundred thousand people could congregate peacefully and just enjoy music. And that was a concept that wasn't really all that popular then, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, coming after Woodstock and I mean, yeah, we do tend to forget about the the troubles that that Woodstock had. I mean, there were there were artists who were supposed to play who couldn't get there. Right. So, right. Uh, you know, and fans who couldn't get there. And it, it was it was a bit of a logistical mess. Um, and. And, and you know, it, the sec this this international pop festival, the Atlanta one in 1970, had a moment. Peter said where that could have happened because they weren't planning on helicoptering in some of the acts, but Alex actually wound up having to get military helicopters to the site because the traffic on 85 was stopped. This was in Byron, Georgia, so the traffic was stopped all the way to the Delta sign in downtown Atlanta. Right. And, you're talking, you know, 50,000 cars probably on the highway that yeah. so if you were an artist, you you weren't able to get through. But he was able to you know wrangle this replacement method rather quickly to be able right. to, to get some, you know, get the artist there. So there weren't any gaps in the programming. There weren't people bored for several hours with nothing to do. And that's when trouble sometimes starts when they start getting upset that there, are, there aren't any musical acts. And, and of course this was a um, $14 ticket right. <laughs> when you, when you had the Allman brothers and Jimi Hendrix and Procol Harum and yeah. spirit back again. And, and one of the other acts that performed and someone else I spoke to for my story was uh, the Hampton Grease band and Glenn Phillips who lives here in Brookhaven. Yep. He's, such, he's such a lovely guy. Glenn is really yeah. one of my favorite people just in general. I, I love what I have to do a story that involves Glenn in any way whatsoever yep. because he's he's so sweet and he's so insightful and thoughtful. And I really love talking to him about his memories of playing the festival. And, you know, right from the second we started talking, he said, you know, this was all because of Alex, Alex Cooley. I mean, this would not have happened without Alex's vision. And 
the Hampton Grease Band was actually supposed to play at the first pop festival. Right. And they had temporarily temporarily disbanded at that point. And so Alex asked them if they wanted to play as a band called the Stunt Brothers. So they said, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. And then at the last minute, Grand Funk Railroad showed up. They weren't on the bill initially. <laughs> and Alex was like, yeah. yeah, I'm really sorry. They're actually going to be a bigger draw than you. So bye <laughs> you yeah. know, at, at the first one. But then for the second one, you know, Alex came to them and said, we we want you on this stage and we want you to play two sets over two days. And people didn't know who the Hampton Grease Band was at the time. I mean, they weren't a, a huge national name. And also, right. if you know anything about their music, they're not exactly commercially friendly. No. <laughs> no. no. They're yeah. kind of this weird amalgamation of jam and blues and funk and jazz. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they have lots of weird things going on there. And because of their performance at the at the uh, International Pop Festival, they were able to get a record contract with Columbia. And, you know, Glenn will say the only reason they got that record contract was because Clive Davis, who was president of Columbia Records at the time, had mm-hmm. sent people to Atlanta to, to this festival because he was, Clive, of course, you know, one of the most astute record record guys in the world even at the time he knew that there was something happening and you know in atlanta and he wanted guys on the ground to see you know what's going on who's performing is there anybody there i should know about so these a and r guys come down from new york and they see the reaction that the hampton grease band is getting from just based on their live performance not even necessarily their music so they all go running back to clive and say oh my god you wouldn't believe the you know the way the crowd was reacting to this hampton grease band we got to sign them so clive was like okay sure let's sign them and then of course they Captain Greaseband wound up having, I think, the lowest selling album in Columbia Records. Right, history. yeah, they're, yeah, they're, that's <laughs> often been said that it's one of the, yeah, yes, one of the worst yes. selling. And exactly. it, is, it is a sprawling thing that is, is not <laughs> not an easy listen by any means, but it no. is fascinating. No, it is. It is not. And and that's what Glenn just found so amusing looking back on it that, you know, they, they weren't signed because they liked, you know, the 20 minute songs that the Hampton Grease Band was playing. <laughs> they were signed because of the energy that they saw people reacting to. And, you know, I mean, it didn't work out from a record standpoint, but it certainly worked out from a cult standpoint because then the Hampton Grease Band became very well known in sort of those underground circles and yeah. Bruce Hampton, their, their singer then later on became, you know, Colonel Bruce Hampton and, and the legend that, that he was as well. So, right. I mean, right. so, you know, so, some cool things came out of it. And of course, Hendrix was a big story for many reasons. Um, you know, this is another one of those things where you have to, you have to think back to that time period. And when Lester Maddox was the governor of, was the governor of Georgia, you know, he, he was really a segregationist and he didn't want this festival to happen in the first place from what Peter told me, you know, what Alex would would tell him about it. And they didn't, they didn't like the idea of festivals. You know I mean? They didn't like the idea of all these kids getting together in one place to listen to that rock and roll music. I mean, it was, it was the, you're, you look at you're doing to society kind of thing. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it was, it was difficult for Peter to get the, I'm sorry, for Alex to get the permit in the first place. And then it was even more difficult afterward because then they passed a whole bunch of laws that made it virtually impossible to get a festival permit. So that's why there was never a third Atlanta International Pop Festival, because for decades it was almost impossible to put on something like that. But but back at this one, you know, Alex was friends with all these music managers and he just had called up Hendrix's manager and said, you know, we'd love to have him come out and play. And they said, "Okay, sure. But the fact that there was a black headliner and a segregationist governor with yeah. Richard Nixon as president yeah. 
was really an amazing feat that they were able to pull this off. And, you know, and Peter also said that most of the performers or many of the performers who were on the bill had a hard time getting hotels, not even because of race, but because everything was so conservative in Georgia at the time that rock and roll was considered very threatening. And Alex was considered this pariah to a lot of people. And he wound up bringing a lot of the musicians to his own house to stay, to stay over because right. they, they couldn't get hotel rooms because just those, you know, those long haired hippie freaks were going right. to be in the Radisson or whatever. Right. <laughs> they, just, they just didn't like that. So, so, I mean, there, there's so many, there's so much of a cultural impact that, that these festivals had. And even just from the, the perspective of, building it you know i mean if you've been to music midtown in the last you know nine eight years that it's been back or back when you when you went back in the 90s you know you look at the logistics of of something like that with multiple stages and lighting towers and and all that well of course you know in in modern times there are companies that that started in the in the you know late 70s early 80s that built all this stuff but back in 69 70 you didn't have a company that was going to build a lighting tower. They were using the telephone poles out in, at the Byron racetrack. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, there were people who specialized in that sort of thing. You just had to get construction people and show exactly. them what you needed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they built the stage out of four by fours and plywood. I mean, they built the fencing around the area out of wood and, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they were down there for two months building all of this because it's not like you could just pick up the phone and say, hey, I need a, you know, I, I need a stage set up and this is these are the specs and this is what you're going to do and all that kind of stuff. And this was um, held at the, at, the, at the Byron Raceway. So the first right. one was in Hampton and apparently Alex didn't have a great experience with that location, but he liked that particular type of environment, which is why he brought it to Byron the next year. And if you go to Byron at any point, um, you know, there is a historical marker that is there marking the site. The The racetrack is still there, but the the area where the actual you know festival took place are now, you know, homes and subdivisions and that type of right. stuff. So, so the memory of that is no longer there, but there, there is a marker that would show you roughly the area where it was taking place and right. also the highway that that piece of highway a couple of years ago what right before alex died actually was renamed um cooley conway no wait <laughs> i always get this wrong cooley conlin parkway yeah and so you know both of them are kind of immortalized there because peter and alex then went on to peter didn't know alex at the time he hadn't met alex yet in 1970 yeah. it was i think about a decade later that they met and then you know became friends and business partners and started concert southern promotion mm -hmm. company and that's yep. when you know and the music midtown started and they brought festivals back to atlanta so so you know they have a deep history that's intertwined you know both personally and professionally because they were really really close friends um so, uh, you know, they, they both sort of got a bit of do you know, out, out yeah. in Byron. But I haven't been out there personally. I, I had hoped back, you know, months ago when I realized that, oh, yeah, I did the anniversary story last year. I'll do a, another one for the second festival this summer. So, you know, like in January, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to drive out to Byron and go see what's going on. Right. Yeah, that didn't happen <laughs> yeah. for various reasons. And also, Peter said there's really nothing to see out there. So. Right. I'm not sure that it would really be worth the drive because it's not a quick drive either. No, that's the thing. It's not. It's 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 like below Macon, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah. 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 But and that's why when you think of how far traffic was backed up. <laughs> right. On that yeah. day. And that's actually kind of funny, too, that Peter, as a young man, tried to go to the festival again, didn't know Alex at the time. He and his friends were like, all right, yeah, let's go down there. So that morning. They got in their car and they were like, all right, you know, we're, we're going to head down there. And then they hit this roadblock of traffic around the Delta sign on 85. And they were like, uh -uh, no, we're just going to go get a cooler beer yeah. and 
made a U-turn, went back home, and that was the end of that. They they never yeah. actually made it there because people had also started going, you know, days in advance and and camping out because you know word word got out way differently then <laughs> than it does yeah. now. It wasn't like a social media post or something right. on Instagram or whatever. But the music community was uh, was a very tight one, and they you know just the, the posters that were up in record stores and the people who would talk to their friends and then also people who had gone the year previous that knew a little bit about what the pop festival was going to be all about. And then you see this lineup of who was going to be coming. So, yeah, I mean, it was a, a huge, exciting thing for Atlanta at the time and not something that Atlanta was used to seeing, especially two years in a row. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing that, and, and it's, you know, it's something a lot of people don't really talk about these these festivals because, like you said, after the second one happened, there weren't any more for right. there weren't any festivals at all for a long time in Georgia. Um, but it did change the fact that people would come here, artists would come here after that because then they realized that there were venues that they could go to. It wasn't just you know festivals that they could play at; they could come play at venues and. Alex had a big part in bringing some of those bands here um, along yes. with other people. So, so, you know, it did have a legacy in that. Uh, even Absolutely. If, even if the festivals didn't continue immediately, um, you know, but of course it, the, the experience of that I'm sure fed into music Midtown when it first came back. Um, and it's interesting to note that you talk about how there's nothing where the festival took place anymore uh, the first music midtown, <laughs> uh, where there is something there, but it's has <laughs> it's nothing to do with music midtown, yeah. right? It's, it's the Federal Reserve Building, um, right. that's where the first music midtowns took place, um, in a big open field right there in the middle of midtown. Yeah, that's um, pretty, that's pretty incredible, too. That when you look back at the pictures of, of the way that was staged, and yeah. and they don't, you know, they haven't put a marker up there, have they? No, no. And I, I don't know, you know, maybe they will at some point. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was, it, it's hard to believe that they fit a festival in that space. Yeah, no um, kidding. But yeah, I mean, but the Cotton Club, which was across each mm-hmm. street, was also a stage. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, but yeah, those were, those were great festivals. But yeah, I, I love that that so many of the people who played in the the second festival, um, you know, they they aren't really household names today. But I mean, there a lot of them you would recognize. Of yeah, course, yeah. Uh, besides well, Hendrix, well, BB King also played the festival yeah. too, and and uh, Johnny Winter. I mean, there there were yeah. you know, and, and yes, and also at that time, some of them were well known, but others were like right. almonds. The almonds were like this up and coming band from Macon yep. <laughs> yeah. and people in, in Georgia knew about them, but not necessarily, you know, people who might've been driving in from other parts, even from Florida or Tennessee or, or wherever. So, I mean, for, you know, for them, it was this huge break and this huge stage to play for, you know, Peter said Alex estimated the crowd at probably the high threes, close to 400,000, because some, some estimates were up to like 600,000 and that didn't really seem realistic. You know, of course, who was keeping track in any type of structured way back then. And and I remember this when I did last year's story, the oral history, everybody I talked to had a different opinion about how many people were there because, you know, you could pretty much say whatever you want at this point. Oh, there are 700,000 people there. (laughs) Right. And and memories, 50 year old memories are are, are really suspect in in many ways. Yes. 
yes. You can't yes. really uh, count on the reliability of no. a memory that's 50 years old. So. No, you can't. You know, one, one funny thing that Peter recounted for me was, so, you know, Hendrix, of course, played the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. And he, you know, Alex was planning to let, set off fireworks during his performance, but he didn't tell Jimmy he was going to do it. And so, you know, Jimmy comes out and he starts playing the song and Alex, you know, has the fireworks guy starts setting off the fireworks. And Peter said, you know, Hendrix almost had a heart attack on stage because he, he didn't know what the heck was happening. He hadn't been right. told that this was going to happen. So, you know, to, to startle Jimi Hendrix yeah. is probably its own claim to fame in a yeah. way. But, and so if you are a Hendrix fan and if you do want to know more even about the festival, because it does delve into the, the festival in general, there was a documentary that came out on Showtime a few years ago called Electric Church. And that is available on DVD and Blu-ray. So if you want to track that down, that'll also give you some interesting insight into, you know, Hendrix's involvement involvement in all of this and just, you know, a little bit more about the festival in general. Because, you know, again, Glenn Phillips said, this did not exist in Atlanta. To hear music like this, you had to drive to New York to, to right. see it and to hear it. Yeah. And and it's, it's kind of difficult for people to realize just how big of a cultural shift it was to have those particular artists playing in Atlanta with the political environment that was there at the time and have almost 400,000 people peacefully assembled, relatively peacefully assembled. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think there was some nudity as well in pools and, or lakes. Oh, well, or yeah. Like that. I, I, that, that probably came with the territory in 1970. Yes, exactly. These are all the reasons I always hated going to festivals in general. <laughs> yeah. I never yeah. wanted to be around any of this stuff. But yeah. always, when I went to Woodstock 99, you know, I was the one who was staying at the Hampton Inn about 40 miles away from the site because some, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I, you expected me to not show shower for three days that is yep. not happening ever. yep i always did the same thing with bonnaroo you know yeah so. yeah it's like i'm tense tense and i don't get along you know nope. i i always just say my my version of roughing it was room service from the marriott that was yep. pretty much it but, yeah i love going out there seeing the music and then yeah. going somewhere comfortable afterwards yes. yeah and, and being being able to be clean at the end of yeah. the night and yeah. not have mud caked on you or whatever but yeah. but you know i mean but the, again you know most of the people who went that's why they were going they were going to hang out and to spend the night and to do yeah. their own form of camping and and all that kind of stuff but but again you know it, it was it was a relatively peaceful event over you know it, it was the weekend but it also really went into the monday morning by the time everything actually wrapped up so mm -hmm. you know it was one of those loosely structured festivals and um you know with hendrix of course he performed at this fourth of july weekend and then two months later he died yeah. so it, it wasn't his last performance but it was one of his last performances i right. think he maybe did six or seven after that and, and then that was it but it really is noted as one of his most famous ones and that's why right. they did this this documentary that's uh, totally worth checking out yeah yeah and i would recommend you know look taking a look at uh, you know all the other artists who were at this festival it's, it's a fascinating lineup mm -hmm. um you know and if you check out some because it, this was an early early uh mott the hoople before mott the hoople became you know like <laughs> you know yeah before they met david bowie and and, right. yeah, and got hits over in the uk um you know so that was early uh my people and procol harem about this time i would have killed to see them um, yeah that's what i would like to see robin power was still with them at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. so yeah that was the, actually 1970 my favorite procol harem album came out so well there you go that would have been perfect and you know who else was there bob seeger with the, right. bob, seeger, with the bob seeger system yeah yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, that was before he just became Bob Seger. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, and technically, you know, I, I should say it was technically the Jimi Hendrix experience that, that right. performed at the festival. Yes. You know, so let's, yeah. let's clarify that too. But true. Yeah. But, and, and Grand Funk did come back. Grand Funk yeah. Railroad did play again, and so there was they were able to find room for both the Hampton Grease Band and Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. this particular year, and you know, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was really a, a pretty interesting lineup of course you know we all sort of focus on the almonds and and hendrix but you know even look at people like mountain and poco and yeah. I, you know richie havens yeah. <laughs> john and, sebastian and, and i have to throw in a mention for the incredibly awesome terry reed who, who far too many people don't know yes uh, he's frankly I, I i believe one of rock and roll's greatest vocalists ever um you and know. he was a big he was a big session guy too yeah, well, he, yeah, and, and the thing is, he was uh, once, I believe, um, talked about as being a vocalist for, you know, it's like that Jimmy Page wanted him mm, at mm-hmm. one point as the vocalist for Led Zeppelin um, and wow. turned him down, supposedly. Wow, um, yeah. So, yeah, there there's all sorts of stories about Terry Reed and how so many people wanted to work with him and, you know. He did his own thing, but uh, he is just an incredible singer. Um, so, yeah, I recommend checking him out. And he was there at that festival. So, And he probably didn't do a whole lot of live performances either. <laughs> well, yeah, probably, probably not. Although, you know, you, you'd be surprised at some of the There actually are live performances on YouTube, strangely enough. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Of him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, from, from that time. Yeah. Um, you know, he... He continued. He's still around. Um, he, yes, he's, he's, he's still, still alive. alive and, Seventy uh, years old. Oh my gosh! I'm looking up. I'm looking at his bio right now. We have the same birth day, not the same birth date. Uh, <laughs> the uh, same birth date. He's a yeah. fellow Scorpio, so I like him already. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but he, yeah, he's uh, he's still still around. And uh, but yeah, you can find some performances from back then, and uh, uh, he's he's just pretty amazing. And it's it's really shocking how how he's not more famous than mm-hmm. he is. Yeah. Right, right. He's not a name that would, you know, be known to the yeah. casual music fan type of type of thing. Yeah. Well, and that's also something that Alex was really good at doing even in the earliest years of him being, you know, a music promoter was that he he really did seek out talent and he really yeah. did know what was going on, you know, across the pond and and you know, really had his finger on the pulse to use a cliche of right. of what was happening musically and to bring some of those guys over here was right. a huge deal because, you know, it was probably the first time they had played anywhere outside of maybe New York or Monterey Festival or, you know, big things like that. So, yeah, that's right. to, to have them in Atlanta <laughs> as well yeah. in in that time, you kind of go, "Wow, yeah, this is a really eclectic lineup of of lots of different types of music, and and I guess that you know that attributed to its success too is that, like with most festivals, you know you do try to get that combination of different styles, different types, because everybody wants to hear something else, and you hope that the people realize that even if they don't recognize half the bands, that they might at least listen to them and discover something new. That's really what right. I've always liked about festivals. That's that's the good side of the festivals. The bad side is the the dirt. But yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, sometimes even at Music Midtown, the, the the undercard artists, I might not be that familiar with some of the earliest p- players of the day. But if those are the ones that you sometimes go, oh, huh, wow, now I know yeah. this is this is a band absolutely worth keeping an eye on or checking out. So you know, the the fact that Alex was doing that back in 1969, 1970 too, is something that 
was really so great for Atlanta and people in Atlanta and Georgia to be able to experience, right? You know, essentially in their backyard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's, it, it really looks like it was a pretty amazing festival and it's, it's a shame that there isn't, you know, footage of the whole thing. Like, you know, I know like a, like a full concert or something. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, and I do want to say thanks to the folks at UGA, their library, they were, they were very helpful in helping me um, or not helping me, but they were able to provide me with some of their archived photos. They have a display up there that they, that they were able to take some stuff out to photograph that we were able to use with the story and, and online. And also Glenn had some really cool pictures of the Hampton Grease band. And again, you know, you kind of look back at these things and go, Oh God, I hope there was a photographer there. (laughs) (laughs) And, and the the 1971 did definitely get more press than the 1969 one last year. That was really hard to, to find some photos because it was just something that people had heard about. And what is this thing? You know, whereas at least in 70, they had an idea of what had come the year before. And then, you know, with a, a name as notable as Hendrix atop the bill, yeah, there, there was a lot more press coverage than, um, than the one previous, but it, it's, it's really, you know, it's always great to look at those, those photos from that time yeah. period and, and to look at just the festival crowd and the structure of the setup and, and, you know, and compare it to what we're so used to seeing, now and and of course you know most people are not wearing many clothes because it was july in georgia so (laughs) that's that's kind of understandable also but i did some pictures i was like yeah i don't think we can use this one actually (laughs) speaking of the nudity (laughs) the best but but yeah so but they the uga folks were really cool with uh helping helping us use some of that footage and stuff as well so yeah well, that, that brings us to a good point where, uh, you know, we can tell people that uh, they need to go and read your story. Yes. Uh, which is at AJC.com on the Music Scene blog. Yes. And you can see the photos uh, that uh, Melissa's talking about and, and all of that um, and see what everybody had to say about the festival. Besides- and check- other than us. Other than know. us, right, exactly. I think we've said everything <laughs> that we possibly could. And and check out and check out the Electric Church documentary also. I think if you're interested in this at all, you will definitely want to spend some time with that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much, Melissa. Thank you, Shane. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure we will. <laughs> There's nothing normal about our new normal, but AJC.com is the same trusted source you've always had. And we have just as much great content, if not more. That's why each week I'll highlight my personal picks for the best things to do, see, and experience. And the stories are easy to find on AJC.com. While the doors to most local theaters are closed, some of our finest theater companies are finding ways to keep actors employed and keep their work in front of audiences. They may not be able to fill the seats with live bodies, but they can stream some great entertainment right into our homes. This week, the Alliance Theatre Company is launching We're Still Here, a virtual cabaret series that begins this Thursday and continues every Thursday through August 13th. Three half-hour episodes of the Variety Show will stream live on the company's Facebook page and its YouTube channel. The shows will be hosted on alternating weeks by Atlanta Musical Theatre veterans Terry Burrell and Courtney Collins. Bert Osborne spoke with the two actresses about the show and what they've been doing to keep spirits up and creativity flowing during a time that's been particularly tough for live theater. Read more at AJC.com under the Things to Do tab. In these days of social distancing and time spent at home, one of the things many of us might miss is a bit of pampering. Many spas and salons are open, and there are many new rules and regulations for them to follow. But some of us may not feel quite ready to venture back into those spaces. 
freelance writer Mary Welch went looking for ways to get that experience at home and to do it with things that are easy to find in your local stores or even in your garden. She spoke with several local experts about healthy beauty treatments that you can create for yourself. Get all the details on these do-it-yourself options at AJC.com. Many restaurants are back in dine-in service mode with many adjustments, of course, but some are still relying heavily on takeout. The AJC's dining team is still exploring some of the best in takeout with the Atlanta Orders In feature, which you'll find in print in the living section Monday through Friday. Recent visits include East Lake Gem Poor Hendrix, Downtown Decatur's Leon's Full Service, Great Sichuan in Johns Creek, and the fruit and veggie-centric Upbeat in West Midtown. You can find all of the places the team has visited on the Atlanta Restaurant Scene blog at AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. And finally, we found out this week that DragonCon will not be happening this year, at least not in the traditional sense. The annual downtown gathering of comic and cosplay fans and fans of lots of other entertaining things will still offer some... The annual downtown gathering of comic and cosplay... The annual downtown gathering of comic and cosplay fans and fans of lots of other entertaining things will still offer some virtual options, but there won't be an in-person fest this year. It wasn't a surprise, and most of us saw it coming. Still, it's a disappointment to many and a loss for the city. The AJC is dedicated to keeping you up to date with all the latest cancellations and reschedulings. Stay in the know at AJC.com. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith. Podcast edited by Bria Felician. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.